You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. They made a really big deal of the 1916 presidential election returns in New York. No, you couldn't watch it on TV, but the searchlight on top of the Times building blazed as bulletin boards were placed and replaced with the latest returns. Still by hand, they didn't have that neat motomatic scrawling display until the 1920s. You couldn't get a table in Times Square on election night. The night birds filled up all the restaurants watching the results. The New York American newspaper installed 50 telephone lines to get the word out to movie theaters, hotels, and corner bulletin boards all across the city. And into forest labs. In the upper part of the city, a man using a new vacuum tube-powered transmitter, now you called radio, gave out a signal to 7,000 so-called wireless telephone operators within a 200-mile radius of the city. And while this operator, not yet known as a disc jockey, played all the hits of the time, the Star-Spangled Banner, Dixie, and Columbia, the Gem of the Ocean. And during these songs, he would give the results that he had through this new fantastic medium, that only a special few people could hear. Yet despite all of these sources of information, everyone got the story wrong. Hughes wins, screamed the operators and the headlines the next morning. Indeed, the Republican nominee for president, former popular governor of New York, and up until a few months ago, an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, the bearded, mustached, and hatted Charles Evans Hughes, went to bed with aides telling him he was president-elect. He had snatched a number of states, won by President Wilson four years earlier. Starting with New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, the president's home state of New Jersey, and even the vice president's home state of Indiana, as well as Wisconsin, Illinois, Minnesota, Michigan, Hughes, Hughes, Hughes. This may have been just fine with the man in the White House. When his aide, Joel Tumulty, called him election night, Wilson said, Joe, I believe we've been licked. And Tumulty could detect a tinge of happiness in Wilson's voice. When his daughter, in the next day, said the paper had put out an extra edition to announce that you're winning, Daddy, he said, tell it to the Marines. Did Wilson want to be president? Well, it's hard to say. This was a tough time to be president. War had broken out between Germany and Great Britain and France. We were neutral ostensibly, but we might have to get in after all. Wilson was a workaholic, you might say. Once he put his mind into something, in fact, he would get a stroke as president of Princeton. He would get a stroke later as president of the United States, working himself so hard. But it may not have been apparent during the election of 1916, much to the chagrin of some of his aides. This summer, they had trouble plucking the president from his nice beach house in Elberon on the New Jersey shore, a house called Shadow Lawn. Really nice house. Pictures of it on the internet. Fortunately, it's no longer there. It's part of a college now. And before we criticize President Wilson too much, that's what you did back then when you were president. It was hot in Washington. There wasn't any AC. 
you went up north, often to the Jersey Shore. Joe Tumulty set up the presidential campaign where Wilson was, in the nearby resort town of Asbury Park, so that the campaign operation could be close to the vacationing commander-in-chief. But Wilson, in Tumulty's view, seemed more interested in riding around in his car, in the Jersey Shore, and in a second honeymoon with new wife Edith. You might say he was taking a breather, waiting to recharge his batteries, as he would go into term two, certainly, we know with a vengeance that would nearly kill him. But right now he was leisurely, while his opponent was speaking all across the country and attacking his vacillation on the issue of the war between Germany and Great Britain and France. Was he standing up enough for American rights? His policy was unclear. He's making the United States look weak. Hughes attacked Wilson's zigzag policy in Mexico and his socialistic domestic policies. Hughes was a good speaker. But his main virtue was that he was unifying a party that was fractured in 1912. And that's what allowed Wilson and the Democrats to win in the first place. Conservative Easterners liked Hughes enough, but Western progressives who had backed Theodore Roosevelt over Taft four years before liked him enough too. He could get Theodore Roosevelt speaking for him out there, and he could get that star of the Republican Party in 1916, William Harding, the senator of Ohio, his keynote speaker in the convention, campaigning for him as well. The conservatives and the progressives. Because Hughes was on the Supreme Court in 1912, he was one of the few Republicans in the country who didn't have to choose sides between Roosevelt and Taft in 1912. Nothing like a robe to keep you unscathed. Colonel Edward House, Wilson's key advisor and friend, wanted a little more carpe diem. Now that Hughes is the nominee, we can show him up as a progressive who obtained the name, he wrote Wilson, which is a 19s way of saying a progressive in name only. They didn't say that back then. Thus, the campaign would be to win over the progressives, especially in the western states. Though Teddy Roosevelt was backing Hughes in this election with speeches all over the country, Wilson and House would target his voters from 1912, before he patched things up with the pro-business conservatives in the East and his party. House knew the East would probably be lost to the president, so he rattled off states that Wilson now must win. Kansas, Nebraska, Washington, Montana, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico. These are states that were won by Taft, won by Roosevelt, or where the total of those two would have beat Wilson if those two weren't running against each other in a three-way race in 1912. Now, Wilson needed to win those states, but most importantly, California. Wilson lost the state in 1912, and he would have to win it now or stay at Shadowlawn for good. He nudged the president to hit Hughes where he was weak, that he was offering platitudes about what he would do and never saying what it was. What would you say, he wrote, of answering Hughes as he makes a speech, so that his allegations are not allowed to linger? Wilson agreed in principle, but as the months ticked on, June, July, August, did not pursue that point-by-point -point newspaper campaign that House wanted him to. That didn't stop the Democratic Party from going into full gear with a message that President Wilson really didn't want, or at least was iffy about. You see, this was a perilous time for the nation. Great Britain and France were at war with Germany, as we mentioned. The U.S. was neutral, 
but involved, as German U-boats had targeted American ships, and British fleets, too, blockaded some American shipping. The Lusitania was sunk in 1915, and 100 Americans were killed. Americans were outraged, particularly in the eastern states. Wilson sought diplomatic redress with Germany, but did not call for war. Theodore Roosevelt was outraged and hit President Wilson hard, saying Wilson had not yet begun to write. Despite where he was placed by his detractors here, President Wilson was uneasy about being the peace candidate. A majority of Americans, though, at the time, opposed American involvement in a European war. Colorful Kentucky Senator Ole James said during the Democratic Convention in St. Louis, thank God we have a president who kept us out of war. The slogan stuck. And flyers that said he kept us out of war started to appear. Cartoons in pro-Wilson newspapers, particularly Pulitzer's New York World, showed an angry Roosevelt with cannons in his eyes pushing Hughes to war. A flyer sent out to union workers was more direct. It said, you were working, not cannon fodder. And then, as the month before voting approached, Wilson got into the game. Albeit, without leaving the beach house. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. He made a series of porch speeches, defending his policy and logically attacking his opponent. They were made from the circular porch or patio at the summer White House shuttle lawn with crowds of adoring well-wishers on the very spacious grass area, men shaking their hats as Wilson spoke, flags draping everywhere. He logically went after his opponent like the former professor he was. 
He says he is opposed to this administration's foreign policy. There is only one way to be in opposition to this administration's policy, and that is to reject peace. And the crowd cheered, shaking their hands, but most importantly, the speech was in all the newspapers because the president was speaking. Besides the emergence of Wilson, two events in 1916 probably helped him. Oddly, one is the German high command. In May, they announced that they would restrict U-boats to avoid American ships. And as we reached the fall and the election, seemed to be holding. This supported Wilson's diplomatic strategy. The second event is that in the midst of a railroad strike in September, right as the election's approaching, Wilson used emergency war powers given to him by Congress as a result of the European crisis and what he might need to do. And he used it to order the railroads to give workers an eight-hour day to settle the strike. This put Wilson on the side of the working man, even though he only advocated it in one industry. And it forced Hughes to take a stand, which he did, against Wilson's action, against the eight-hour day. And that helped to swing Labor's vote to Wilson. Still, the election was close. At one point, House would write Wilson that things looked good. But then other letters, he was worried about what would happen with the national security if Wilson lost. Should we just make Hughes president immediately if he wins and not wait? Not have a lame duck president? Just avoid that whole thing? Not a mark of confidence. Roosevelt states in 1912 looked scary. They couldn't seem to lock down Ohio. Send the VP to Indiana, he wrote. Send out Brian to the western states. They like him there. What will the German-Americans do? The Irish. Few could call this election, and those who did called it for Hughes. But by the day after Election Day, the Wilson swing was clear. And by a few days later, it was officially confirmed. President Wilson was re-elected with 277 votes. And Hughes was, as a newspaper joked, merely our Tuesday president. Between the two elections, in four years, the president had lost 158 electoral votes. No president had ever done that. More about that later. There were several explanations for what happened in 1916, though no one could deny surprise at the result. Hughes had made a mistake going to California, but not visiting Hiram Johnson, who was a leading progressive in that state, which insulted him and cost Hughes the state perhaps by 3,400 votes. There were other factors. Wilson's eight-hour working day stand might have helped him with workers and may have stopped workers from voting socialists, which these days they were doing. They got a million votes, the socialists, in 1912, and that was shrunk in half in 1916. Most of that certainly went to Wilson. That one hits the mark, especially when you look at the statewide results in California, where the socialist vote goes from 79,000 to 49,000 between those two elections, even though the total vote in California increased between the two elections. In Ohio, the socialist vote in 1912 was 90,000, and it went down to 30,000, one-third, and there was only a small percentage increase in turnout in that state in the 1916 election. Certainly that's part of it, and maybe it was the new women voters that appeared for the first time in 1916 that may have saved Wilson, which is ironic because he had always avoided, equivocated, and even opposed the women's suffrage issue. But both candidates in this election made some very vague statements in the election year, and women may have felt that they had a better chance with Democrats in the issue. See, 
You might say, well, it's 1916, it's not 1920 yet, why were women voting? Women actually could vote in the U.S. earlier than that. They could vote in California. They may have picked a president before the amendment was even passed. Oh, and then there's Ohio, Ohio. Take that out of the mix, and Wilson doesn't win. Just had a very well-run Democratic machine, James Cox and others. For some, the election was a matter of duplicity. He kept us out of war. That would slogan would only last six more months and Wilson would have to go back when Germans would begin unrestricted submarine warfare and American shipping. And Wilson would go to the Congress and ask for war, entering the Great War in Europe on the side of the Allies. Did he know this? Why did he use the issue in the campaign if he knew this? There are many charges that... His vice president, Thomas Marshall, defended him years later. Marshall said, War was abhorrent to the mass of Americans and the 1916 campaign passed off on this issue the president having kept us out of war. There were charges of bad faith, but nobody is able to trace him to any statement of that kind. Wilson, Marshall said, was always a protagonist for peace, and had the Germans not gone berserker mad, he would have continued neutrality. Well, there you have in 1916. It's an interesting election to look at because it's one of those squeaker reelects where American voters put a president back in office who they were not overwhelmingly happy with who at least one section of the country was ready to send packing. Substantial section of the country at that. He was re-elected on an issue that he really didn't advocate. The campaign, as many re-elections do, featured attacks on the opponent and the narrowing of the race to important swing states. If you can't win the whole country, maybe you can win in a few states where you can turn the EVs your way. 1916 is important for another reason. This much is clear. Now that we have 15 presidents, Wilson included, who received a second elected term, 1916 stands alone as the only re-election where the president lost electoral votes from four years before and still won re-election, right? From the first re-election in 1792, that's George Washington, increased his vote total to 139 from 64. A lot of that is technicalities. Yes, New York's votes didn't make it to the first election for a variety of reasons. There were new states added. But from that election to the most recent re-election where George W. Bush went from 271 in the year 2000 to 286 in 2004, everyone has increased their electoral votes in their re-election, sometimes by a small amount, but sometimes large. This includes Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, Jackson, Lincoln, Grant, McKinley, Franklin, Roosevelt, Eisenhower, Nixon, Reagan, Clinton, and Bush. Only Wilson. Wilson stands alone. How much do these presidents increase varies, but it averages about 20% over U.S. history. Now, if you just want to use the moderns, if you can say over the 20th century forward, it's a little less. It's a 9% average increase in the electoral vote in a re-election. You know, Wilson drags it down, and some of the recent presidents just got a small amount. But an electoral vote increase is decidedly a normal part of a re-election. Makes sense. An incumbent is building support, increasing geographic support, is more well-known now than they were as a candidate, maybe uses a little bit of the Air Force One effect, the White House favors, whatever the reason is, or if it's a variety of reasons. When they win, there's an upward trend. And if there's not, they're probably not winning. And here's what we can say. If only in one of these re-elections a president would be going down in electoral votes while winning, we could say it's a perilous situation if a president would seem to be doing that. 
only one out of 15 that pulled it off. President Obama, look at the statewide polls in some of the key states, Florida, Ohio. Noticeably, he's been up since the primaries, and the primaries kind of dragged the Republican candidates down. He showed an advantage there, small though. Polls varies, and sometimes he has a lead even in the states of North Carolina and Indiana, but most experts agree that these will be tougher. Colorado may be tough this year. Virginia has a lead in a lot of recent polls, but it's been up and down. In a sense, it's meaningless to look at this because all that matters is the win. And if you win like Wilson in 1916, you win. But what kind of win? In 1916, it meant that all the way to Election Day, the man in the White House was uncertain of victory. It puts a scantilla of doubt, let's say, on the president's re-election in 2012. No one should be supremely confident when you can't show an increasing EV total. How you're going to get there. There are many, perhaps more signs, pointing towards re-election. I've discussed some of them. The 1916 election is one that would bring a smile to an Obama-Biden 2012 supporter. And then, of course, there's that overall point. Just because something... Hasn't happened much in the past doesn't mean it can't happen now. Even I, doing this podcast on history and politics, history's not a guarantee. It's just kind of like tracing paper, not iron bars. Everybody back to your corners. Keep your eyes on the state polls. And if things aren't looking good for the incumbent, well, there's always that beach house thing. I want to thank you for listening. Website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. This is one re-election. We'll be looking at uh, several others. We have a Facebook site where you can discuss things. The archive's available, $14.99. I've talked about a price increase, but haven't yet done it. Maybe the economy hasn't improved enough yet. If you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.